This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. And now doing Big Mouth and, and related activities, I've, I think I've seen the rewards of being more personally honest and vulnerable and less focused on outside characters and more focused on myself in a way that I think it took has taken me a long time to sort of be willing to share. I'm your host, Casey Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. When you think about Nick Kroll, you think about what can only be described as an army of memorable characters he's created through the years through his comedy specials, The Kroll Show, and of course, his hit Netflix show, Big Mouth. Nick has spent most of his career slipping into voices and personas that we all know and love. And while he's exceptionally good at it, and he still loves what he does, he's pushing himself to step in front of those characters to reveal more of himself. And that's proving to be a true challenge. In our conversation, Nick unpacks how he's tackling that challenge, where he's taking the expanding universe of Big Mouth, and how he finds humanity in the show's outlandish humor. Hello, Nick Kroll. Hello. <laughs> Listen, I feel like I say this, I repeat myself at the start of every of these conversations because I'm like, oh my God, I'm so excited to talk to this person. I mean, imagine a world where I had a show where I wasn't excited to talk to my guests, but you in particular, I'm very excited to talk to you because you're, I, I've just been so enamored with your career and I just, you're just one of the funniest people like we're out there right now. So I'm just very excited to talk to you, but I want to start off by asking, I mean, do you remember the first performance or project that you created that really mattered to you? Like that one project, one performance that clicked something in you to say like, oh, I am funny or, oh, I can possibly do this as a career. Uh, you know, I think the the reality of, of a career is rarely like um, massively seminal moments and instead a lot of like... Um, uh, I mean, let's, I mean, we could have a little fun with seminal moments and, and big mouth, but, um, <laughs> you can't turn it off. <laughs> you can't turn it off. Um, but I would say, you know, I look at my career as not as much of these massive seminal moments of like, I mean, I think we all want to create those narratives, which are, you know, partly like with your show people, it's much easier to be like, and then it clicked. Mm -hmm. But I, I think in reality, it's, it's all of these smaller steps along the way but the first thing that came to mind that you with that question was I had been in New York for I graduated college and moved to New York and was doing some stand up and, and improv and sketch really anything with anyone everywhere I could. And John Mullaney, who was still in college at the time at Georgetown, I had graduated and was living in New York. And he and I would always joke about like those newsreel voices, you know, from the 30s, like, you know what we ended up calling was cavalcade of personalities, you know, and uh, <laughs> there's Jojo Bryson, heir to the Bryson clam sauce fortune, you know, um, <laughs> right. and we, and we would, we were joking and I was like, let's write these down. And he was like, okay. And so we just wrote like so many of these silly things. And then I found uh, through a friend, a guy named Brendan Coulters, who's a, a director and editor. And, and I just started to put it together. Um, and I brought out a bunch of friends, some of whom I knew, some of whom I had just started meeting in the comedy world and produced this very silly newsreel called Cavalcade of Personalities. I think it's on YouTube. Um, and we made it 
uh, took forever. It's the kind of thing now that we would probably shoot and edit and cut in, in two days. And that right. in that time, this is like 2003, maybe. The dark ages. Took months to make to like figure out how to put a grain filter on something. <laughs> oh, uh, and now you just like, it's a Snapchat or like an in- Instagram. You just like, oh, click a thing. Right. And it won some like local New York alt comedy scene awards and and it i entered it in some little festivals and it was it was a bit of a calling card for me um to sort of say like hey i make things and i make things with lots of people and here's my sensibility and and so i think once that i made it and it worked i I think it was it was one of the first things where i was like oh I, i i like all of the aspects of this of being a performer I was, if I remember correctly, I was, there's Chuckles Fine. Toast to Vaudeville. Toast to Vaudeville. Chuckles Fine. Watch out, ladies. He'll verbally abuse you. <laughs> anyway, it was ultimately very fun. That was an early thing where I was like, oh, I, I think I am I can be good at all of the various aspects of this. Mm. And I love that you mentioned that when you were giving it, you when you were uh, distributing it, you were saying, like, here's my sensibility. Because I was going to ask, what informs your comedy? Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's tough to say. I mean, I, I guess there, there is some sort of tie through of sensibility and, and, you know, I definitely historically am very interested in, um, in different time periods and genre. I like to play inside of genre, but rarely is it a direct parody. There's usually some other weird element. I think the characters I've historically liked to play or develop um especially in the real sketch character world think of themselves as very important and tell everyone how important they are (laughs) (laughs) when in reality they're oftentimes unbelievably unimportant um and i find there's something very like funny but also charming and disarming about those people but that was in the sort of when I was doing a ton of character and sketch and stuff and, and now doing uh, uh, big mouth and, and related activities. I've, I think I've, I've been, I've seen the rewards of being more personally honest and vulnerable and less focused on outside characters and more focused on myself in a way that I think it took, it's taken me a long time mm-hmm. to sort of be willing to share um, it was much easier to hide behind characters and what their point of view on the world was than it was to be willing to share my own. Right. Are we like looking at the same Google Doc? Because you're honestly going down the list of all my questions, like just <laughs> naturally segueing into everything. Because I was going to ask, like, how have you grown as a comedian? Ah. And now here we are. And then... There you go. I'll, I'll always answer the question before you you are ready to uh, pose. And then uh, we can go from there. But uh, yeah, I... Um, I guess it's, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about myself, so I'm ready to answer any and all. <laughs> right. And again, I was going to say, like, you brought up your your sketch comedy characters because that's something that you've definitely become known for, even before, obviously, before Big Mouth. I mean, you had The Kroll Show, you had your comedy special, you know, Thank You, Very Cool. And so do you ever go back and watch some of your old material, old sketches? Like, are you one of those people that, or you just, you do it and forget it? I have a bit of a goldfish brain in general. Like I am sort of like I am wherever I am. And then five minutes later, I've forgotten it. I'm, I'm a bit of a sieve with basically everything. I'll go back and watch even cuts of Big Mouth or spinoff human resources and have no memory 
of storylines that I was involved in breaking with incredible focus, or I'll go and watch episodes of The League or Kroll Show and have almost no memory of any of it. Even Oh Hello, I don't remember. Me and John did that show. We did 140 of those shows on Broadway. If you put a gun to my head, I would not be able to recite like 15% of that show right now. Are you okay, Nicholas? What's going on in your brain? I don't know. (laughs) Honestly, I don't know. I'm not sure if I am okay, but I... I'd like to chalk it up to living in the present. Hey, there you go. And if you want a little bonus, the people say that people that of exceptional intelligence don't tend to hold on to things very long because they're constantly like shoving it out of their brain to make to make room for something else or things that are more important. So thank you. There you go. That's, thank you. Yeah. No, that's what I, I say sometimes. <laughs> I will take that. I will. I will. And the next time my friends or or wife or or partners are like. Do you have any memory of that? And I'm like, no, because I'm exceptionally intelligent. <laughs> exactly. There and I live, I live in a very present tense. So I will occasionally go back and watch things like every, like once a year, twice a year, I'll go back and like get in a bit of like a YouTube K hole of like of a Kroll show sketches. And, <laughs> and I'll be kind of blown away by like how recent that feels and how so far away that feels Mm. and and a bit of nostalgia about the process and also like a deep level of like grateful that i did it and grateful that i am not that i don't have to do that whatever that was every day you know just (laughs) because emotionally creatively you know exhausting and incredibly gratifying but exhausting yeah because i mean i I asked the question to ask a follow-up question of like when you do go back and watch old clips of, of what you've done. I mean, is there anything that you glean from it? Like, what do you take away from that? Yeah. I mean, there's lots of lessons. Hopefully I, I think I try to do the work I do against, I think sticking with this being in the present of like trying to be whatever it is I'm doing on that day or for that period of time, I am trying to stay focused and enjoying the process of whatever it is I'm doing. Because uh, we can't control what the final product will be or how it will be received. All we can control is like, is this a nice way to spend my day? Is this a gratifying way to, I mean, that's speaking from someone with tremendous privilege in all ways, that if you have that privilege to do the thing you want to do, one would hope that you are enjoying it, you know, and it's impossible to enjoy it. There's a lot of busy work. There's so much busy work that gets goes into every thing that we all do, but you're hopefully setting the table for yourself to just enjoy the elements of what you're doing. We're going to take a quick break. And when we're back, we dig into season five of Big Mouth and how Nick is expanding both the show's universe and its emotional range. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. I want to now talk about Big Mouth. Uh, But before we get into season five, I really need to talk to you about season four because I didn't get a chance to interview you during that press run. And (sighs) what was going on in that writer's room, man? That season was so dark. And as a dark myself in multiple ways, Mm -hmm. like I love it. I thought it was great, but it was the tone felt so different coming off of like three seasons. And then just these characters were dealing with a lot that season. So is that something that naturally came about as you're developing the season or did you go into it knowing that you wanted to have what I perceived as a very dramatic shift in tone? 
I think, you know, we've learned each season, we learn more and more about the show and how to make it. And in season two, we did this deep dive into shame and we introduced the shame wizard voiced by David Thewlis. And we're always like a year and a half to two years ahead of whatever is coming out. So like right now, season five is about to premiere uh, the fall of 2021. We are already finished writing, voicing and drawing the rough drafts of season six of the show. Mm -hmm. So in a good way, we are not reacting to the response from people. Um, We're just sort of doing it. And what we realized when we made season two, the shame wizard, and then we made season three um, and then season three came out and we realized we actually, even before that, what we missed was the real larger thematic quality of season two, the shame. Mm. So for season four, Four, we decided that a, a deep dive on anxiety would be interesting because the more that we make the show, the more that we talk to kids and the more you realize that so many kids right now are suffering from anxiety in a way that when we were kids, I don't think we had the same level of anxiety. And in reality, it's not just kids. All of us have been suffering from more anxiety. The, the amount of screens and phones and 24-hour news cycles and Uh, At the time, what we knew was that season four was going to come out in the midst of the 2020 election, which we knew two years earlier was going to be an anxious, uh, anxiety-filled time. And then little did we know that it would be released in the midst of a global pandemic, which was an even more anxiety-ridden time. So I think it was a stressful, anxiety-ridden writing process because we spent about five months of writing and voicing that season in a real deep dive on anxiety and allowing all of our kids to succumb to it, specifically Nick, my character, um, and then following him throughout that process of uh, anxiety, um, leading to then this very weird meta thing about Nick Burt, Nick Starr, his, his older Nick Starr, a 40 something uh, comedian, but really game show host, a very, ridiculously heightened version of myself, which led to a sort of a dissection of me as a, at the time, a single man, 40, who was struggling to understand like whether I was going to live the rest of my life alone or, or open myself up to more intimacy. And as I was, we were writing and voicing that I was in a relationship long distance. And I was in this push and pull in my actual relationship about whether I was going to open myself up to more intimacy or not. So it was a real, a lot of like life imitating art was incredibly stressful, but ultimately for me, incredibly therapeutic to allow myself to use my art to work through some issues that that I was dealing with in my, in my real life and continues to do so. And, And it's a big show in and of itself is a gift that I get to be able to sort of revisit the trauma whatever version of you want to call that we all have from puberty and adolescence and be able to, you know, use this space to dissect it, understand it, and then hopefully mine it for artistic and, uh, uh, frankly, financial uh, benefit. (laughs) I mean, Hey, let's just be real, but that's incredible. And that, that explains a lot because I like between Nick's personal struggles and then that Halloween episode, it just, that Halloween episode is heavy stuff. It was just, I mean, I, I like again, I loved it. And I love that, you know, that the show that you and your team really 
pushed it in that direction because it's already a button pushing show, which I mean, is all the more reason why I love it. But that season in particular really struck me. And so I find it interesting that you mentioned that this was sort of a return to big exploring bigger themes. Like you brought in the shame wizard in season two, and then you felt like that was something that was missing in season three. And so season four was really exploring mm-hmm. these larger themes. So coming off of season four, what did you want season five to be? Season five, you know, I think we really enjoyed the thematic tie through of anxiety in season four. And we were trying to figure out what season five could then be. And we thought about love, but to be honest in this moment in time, and we were writing season five, um, we had broken half of it when the shutdown happened, March like 13th, we moved over to zoom and we had broken about half the season at that point. And the country and the world had felt so crazy that it felt like, well, there's love, but there's also hate. Mm. Um, And especially we were breaking it, you know, in in the midst of 2020, when there felt like there was so much vitriol through the election and the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. And it was such an emotional year and, and still is. But at that point, it felt so... I think we had, we decided that love and hate would be a really interesting area to play in and introduce these love bugs, you know, like we have anxiety, mosquitoes and shame wizards and hormone monsters. Um, and so we introduced love bugs, but also that these love bugs could also in turn be hate worms, that love and hate uh, can oftentimes be from the same source. Yeah. Oh, man. Again, you're just reading my Google Doc because I was going to (laughs) say that, you know, that's one thing that I love so much about Big Mouth is this expanding universe of these creatures. I mean, we started off with the hormone monsters and then Shame Wizard, Gratitude, Depression Kitty, Tito the Anxiety Mosquito. And then now we have, you know, the love bugs. And then, as you mentioned, which I I don't want to give it away, but we we do realize that, you know, the love bugs can become hate worms, you know, Mm -hmm. like. And obviously, you know, these kids have been in love and pissed off before. So what constitutes attaching a creature to a certain emotion? Like, what's the thinking around, you know, we're going to assign a creature to this particular emotion? It's a great question. I think, you know, sometimes it just happens organically where we're like, oh, we've had our kids in love before, but we hadn't introduced the love bug. And then it's like, well, were was our kid in love mm. or was it a a crush. And now like, let's really do a deep dive into what is it like for our kids to be in love and what is the difference between being in love? And, and, and oftentimes it becomes manifest with the introduction of one of these kind one of these new creatures or monsters, which gives voice to the inner workings of our, our kids. Yeah, I, it's a great question. I think it becomes, all right, well, like we've seen Nick and we've seen him have a crush on a girl, but have we seen him really be in love? And it turns out we haven't. And this gives us the opportunity to, to jump and dive into that. And then also understand all the different versions of love that, you know, you know not just romantic love, but familial love or, or love of a friend or um, all of the different versions of love or, uh, that we all experience. So I think that in this case, we introduced the love bugs and uh, we also, because we have this, and I'm going to about to hit your Google doc <laughs> is probably, uh, we use it as a handoff to create our n- new show, human resources, <sighs> which is uh, <laughs> fine. 
<laughs> takes place in the it's a workplace comedy that takes place in the world of the monsters mm-hmm. um and we use season five of big mouth to introduce these love bugs as a way to then expand further the universe of our what will then become human resources where it's filled with the shame wizards and hormone monsters and love bugs and uh depression kitties and a bunch of other characters that i I, I will not get into yet because you you'll see the show, but you've seen, we've seen glimpses of it on big mouth really starting in season two and then much further in season five of big mouth. Right. And the other thing that I truly love about this show, I mean, I could go on and on, but is really how you find the funny in some of these really tragic characters and how, and how these characters really have developed. And I think I'm thinking specifically of like a character like Lola you know, she started off really kind of a, you know, just a funny person to laugh at. Come, you know, her her aggression, her anger, everything. It's just like, oh, that's funny. But then, as the seasons progress, like you see severe abandonment issues from her mom. Like, you know, and this whole love story between her and Jay is just. I was like, this is never saw them together, but when they like hooked up in season four, I was like, well, once you see them together, you're like, oh my god, this is of course it fits. And so, I mean, how do you like when you're thinking about these characters? And knowing that some of them are dealing with weightier issues. Because, you know, a character like Nick comes from a really privileged mm-hmm. home. And that that's obviously a source of tension for even Andrew, who looks at him and is like, I want your life. And so yeah. for some of these uh, more tragic characters or characters that are kind of going through trauma, I guess, how do you wrap your mind around how to build these characters out knowing they're living in this ridiculous universe of a show that you've created? Sure. It's, uh, you know, I think it's like, it's going to sound cheesy, but it's really having like real love and compassion for all of these characters. And let's not say compassion, let's say empathy to empathize, to really try to put yourself in that character's shoes. So like a character like Lola, who was very far from my personal experience, but I just, from very early on, you know, again, we had publicity, but Liz from publicity is very different ultimately than who Lola has become. And I always loved Lola from the beginning. Same. And I and people were kind of like, "Oh, Lola," but now she's become, I think, a someone that people really have responded to because I think there is like this real deep humanity to her, and you have a ton of empathy for her as like a latchkey kid with a mother, a father she doesn't know, and a, and a mother who's never around, who's always on tour with Hoobastank, and you know she's had to create this. You know, and so when she cut, gets together with a character like Jay and there are these two kids who've been truly abandoned by their families, they really depend on each other. And then to watch the dissolution of that relationship and see how it affects both of them is really dramatic. And I, Lola's also just someone who literally says everything, including her stage directions, um, <laughs> which is a weird thing that organically unfolds. You, it's Again, it sounds so cheesy, but I really like letting the characters direct us you know they start to really tell us who they are and where they want to go and you just have to listen to them and they they will provide these little nuggets that like whether it's something that i improvise on in the recording booth or that we are screwing around in the writer's room and then it's like wow let's and i think also just trying to keep your characters in relation to each other it's like oh jay and lola are home for the summer and they don't get to go to camp we should have them hang out and wow, then they spark and, you know, mm. and so I think we're always trying to do that with all of our characters. I think it's like, you just really want to 
you know, you create these characters. So you want to spend time with them. So you want to love them even when they're fucked up or weird or sad or, or messy. It's like, that's where the humanity is and, and where ultimately a, a ton of pathos and, and also comedy is generated from. And when you think about your career, what would you say has been your biggest creative challenge? Huh? Biggest creative challenge I think is, you know, it's something that I'm like, I'm on tour right now doing stand up. this tour that I started before the pandemic called Middle-Aged Boy. I think the challenge for me that I've, I definitely learned, I think have been working through in Big Mouth and now I'm trying to take into stand-up in this tour where I'm not doing any characters. It's really just being uh, open and honest of, back to where we started, I think of just like allowing people into myself, like my, my true stories of, of who I am and I think that's a scary thing for a lot of people and specifically for some artists, especially ones who are have been largely focused on playing characters. They don't, it's a scary, it's a very vulnerable thing to open yourself up and say like, here's who I am. Here's who I was. Here's the fucked up stuff that I, you know, and um, some people are, are standups and are so good at that. It's what they do best. And, and I, it's been something that I have been trying to get better at um, because I think what I have noticed with big enough is I was so rewarded for being more vulnerable and honest about myself and, and others our writers and other people involved in the show that we were so rewarded for it. Um, so that's been something that I've been, uh, has been a challenge for me to, to be more forthright about myself inside of my work. Mm. To close out this conversation, which I don't want it to end because you're just a fascinating person, but I always like to ask my guests the same question. How have you come to define creativity at this point in your career? Mm. How have I come to define creativity? I mean, I think uh, the way that I seem to be the best creative is, uh, as I will say, is just like being in conversation. Mm. Uh, being in conversation with others, for me, creatively, is always a conversation. Even if I'm doing stand-up, it's a conversation I'm having with the crowd. It's the way that I, uh, is, I seem to create verbally. Very rarely do I sit down at a computer or a desk and be creative. It's almost always in conversation. And I love being able to talk to people, to be in conversation in any number of ways. And I think we live in this crazy moment in time where there are so many different methods of creativity because there's so many different methods of conversation that people can have, whether it's you and I on a podcast over Zoom or people on you know social media or listening to podcasts or making shows and cartoons or films or live, you know. There's just so many creative outlets, which is has its downsides and, and the feeling of there's never an end to the need to create and produce content, but also this really magical element of that we're constantly in conversation, we're constantly being able to create. And I, I feel incredible gratitude, or let, let the gratitude pop back in, uh, voiced by Zach Alphanakis. Right. And there's <laughs> such gratitude for the fact that I get to be creative with so many different partners in so many different ways in, in a single day. And I, I just feel really blessed that I get to do that, be creative. And we're blessed that we get to receive your creative output because it's just absolutely incredible. And Nick, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This, yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been a lovely conversation. Thanks for listening to Creative Conversation. As always, make sure you rate, comment, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I'll see you next week.